0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today we're going to talk about six things, and I'm going to tell you up front what they are. And we're going to try something different. I'm going to experiment a little bit. And we'll see how it goes. Why not? You know, most of this whole process has been experimentation. Some of it has been, I just do whatever and we'll see if it works. This time I'm going to be a little bit more uh, strategic and trying something out. I want to see if it makes the podcast better, if it makes no difference, if it makes it worse. So well, then we won't do it anymore. But we're going to talk about six things and I'm going to break this episode up into six, 10 minute Chunks, which I will then be able to drop in uh, systematically and in order, and people will be able to kind of follow along with what topic we're discussing as they go because it'll change with the various subjects being recorded separately. But anyway, the six topics are I want to talk a little bit about celebrating my son Enoch's fifth birthday last night. We had friends over, and it was a fun time. It was interesting. It was cool. And so we're going to talk about that for a little bit. I'd also like to talk about genealogy and dive in a little bit more on some of the things that I've found out about ancestors as I have traced back my four grandparents. Uh, I haven't traced back all of them as far back as I possibly could, but I have gotten a ways with a few of them, so I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about specifically the McFarlane uh, ancestors that I have on my mother's mother's side, I want to talk about Aerocar and Loch Lomond in Scotland, and next we're going to get into the Supreme Court turning down the lawsuit from Texas this past week, not just Texas, but all the other states that joined on to that lawsuit to attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election with regards to Biden and Trump, we're also going to talk about the plan for on the Rocks blog podcast in 2021. Spent about two hours yesterday talking with my cousin Mike Hershberger about what our plans are, what our intentions are for topics and things that we're going to uh, regularly cover in a certain theme. For 2021, we've got about 16 topics outlined so far that could easily expand to additional topics, but we'll get into that. And then also, I want to talk about going with a more modular design for this podcast in 2021. We're going to try it out a little bit today. This will all be one big episode, but we might start going to the more modular, the smaller, shorter podcast format moving forward in the new year. We'll see. We'll see how I like it. We'll see if we can figure some things out in this episode. But first off, let's start with my son and his fifth birthday that we celebrated this week. Enoch Theophilus Mullet is his name, and he is now five. And to celebrate, we asked him, who do you want to have over? Do you want to have anybody over for your fifth birthday? And Enoch has gotten to know and has really taken a liking to a couple of the boys from the Polk family at church. Uh, Travis and Laura Polk are a dear, sweet couple, very, very sweet. And their family, they've got eight kiddos, they've got some adopted, they've got mostly biological children. They're all biological children, but some of those biological children they adopted from other countries. And very sweet kids. Their kids get along very well with our kids. And two of their boys in particular have just been very, very um, kind and very um, attentive to my son Enoch. And they're a bit older than he is, not terribly, terribly older. But what actually started it was my wife had a surgery here not too terribly long ago for her knee trying to get that finished up, trying to get screws taken out. And so the Polk family and the Pavlik family and the Bergman family, they all chipped in to helping watch our kids while my wife had the surgery. I took off time for work, but I kind of needed to shuttle Lauren back and forth to the surgeon. And so our youngest three kiddos, they went to the Polk residence, and that's where they hung out for the day, and they had a great time Addie Polk. Had uh, a great time with John. She loves, uh, you know, carrying him around and taking care of him and making sure that he's got everything that he needs. My daughter Evelyn gets along very, very well with Grace Polk. And Enoch, meanwhile, he gets along with Kai and Liam, especially. And they just do great. They have a great time. And he is just super enthusiastic. He's super excited to get to hang out with them anytime he sees them at church. And of course, he's got other friends, and there's a lot of people that we could have had over for his birthday, but he said, hey, I want to have kind Liam over. We said, well, why don't we just have the whole family over? And seeing as how they have eight kids and we have seven kids, that makes for a full house in a hurry. So there are eight kiddos plus Travis and Laura. They came over last night and it took us about uh, all week. To get ready for that, because <laughs> we always end up having to do a bit of deep cleaning before we feel comfortable inviting people over. But that's a good thing. That's good for us. Uh, you know, it's just kind of goes with the territory with having a big family, being a busy family. We have a lot of things going on, and so you know we had to get things tidied up. We had to have uh, the house in a certain order to feel. Like we were going to be good hosts and our our guests were going to be comfortable coming over and hanging out. And so they did, and they came over, and the kids got along great. They played together really well. There was a little bit of a dust up between my son Daniel and my daughter Evelyn, where they were kind of, I don't know, bickering like siblings do, like brothers and sisters do. And so I had to address that. But otherwise, everybody got on great. The four older boys, my four older boys, and the older boys from the Polk clan they went down in the basement and they played video games they got a TV that was kind of on the fritz uh it stopped working quite so well so i had just taken it down we bought a new TV in uh thanks in gratitude and in payment for my boys doing yard work and doing kind of upkeep and groundskeeping around the house around the yard and, uh, we have that TV up on the wall. Now it's a nicer, newer TV. And then our former TV, since it was kind of deciding to not work here and there now and then, I just took it down and we set it behind the couch for the time being, cause it's not trash, but I didn't have another mount to hang it up on the wall. And I wasn't entirely sure if it was going to be worth the time to hang it up, given that it was failing intermittently. Well, my innovative engineering, uh, boys that live in the basement. They decided to pull that thing out and set it up, kind of lean it against the wall in another room. So the Polk boys and my four older boys, they played uh, Xbox on the one TV that's on the wall. They played some Super Smash Brothers on the TV that they leaned against the wall in another room. And they just had a good time, a grand old time. My wife Lauren and Uh, Laura Polk, they had a good time chatting and kind of looking at sewing projects and talking about homeschooling and talking about family and and things like that. They had a great time chatting on the main floor. And then Travis and I, we got to get together upstairs and uh, chatted a little bit about genealogy, which we're going to get into here in a minute. But uh, it was just great. It was a special time. It was neat. And uh, we're starting to get, I think, better at inviting people over. That's not always been something that we were um, super good at or whatever, but it's something we've aspired to get better at being good hosts. And, uh, and so, you know, it takes a bit of a process for us, like I said, but if we just kind of regularly plan that out to be intentional and invite different people over and get used to being hosts, having guests, getting to know them, making them feel welcome then i think that's a good thing it's a good thing for our kids to learn it's a good thing for my wife and i to learn it's just a good part of life actually that was part of our plan for 2020 we had it mapped out on our personal organizers at the beginning of the year we said at the outset we want to alternate back and forth between trying to get together at other people's homes or you know it, obviously you don't want to invite yourself over so we said you know hey we're going to once a month or not once a month but every other month Since we're in this new state of Colorado, let's see if we can visit places. And then in the intervening months, we'll plan to have somebody over. We don't want to have it maybe every weekend or every week or every month. But every other month, let's have some family over so we can get to know them. We can practice being sociable, practice being hospitable. So last night, it just so happened to be the Polk family had them over. It was a great time and it was super cool. So one of the things that uh, me and Travis got into talking about as I was showing him my office and I was showing him kind of what I've got going on up here, we got to talking about the podcast because I had shared it with him and he listened to a little bit of uh, some of what I've got up so far and he made a comment about something I had mentioned in one of my episodes, which was that I've been getting into genealogy and I am interested in genealogy. I'm interested in where I specifically come from where my children come from. I wanna know where we land in history or where did we come from? I'm particularly interested in why did my ancestors from different parts of Europe decide to come to the United States of America? Why did they decide to come to the New World and to leave behind their home? Because we're kind of a traveling family. We've been uh, in three states now so far In Lauren's and my 14 years of marriage. We lived in Ohio when we very first started out from 2006 when we got married until 2012. 2012 we moved to eastern Montana where I'm originally from and we lived there from 2012 to 2019 so about seven years. So for those keeping score at home we're about six to seven years in uh, each state and so maybe we're in Colorado for another five to six years. Who knows? God willing we live and do this or that. But in any event, 2019, we moved to Colorado. And each one of those times that we've decided to move, I've thought about growing up and how we moved when I was a kid. We moved from eastern Montana to western Montana, for instance. We moved from western Montana back to eastern Montana. We moved from eastern Montana to southern Ohio when I was about 10. And from that time on until 2012 when we moved back to Eastern Montana, when I moved my family back to Eastern Montana, I've been intrigued by this idea that sometimes it's in your best interest. It's in your family's best interest to try something else, go somewhere else. There's opportunity somewhere else. There's some reason, right? There's some impetus. Either things are not going so great and you're trying to get out of an unhealthy situation, a toxic relationship with your locality or whatever, Or there's just something attractive about the place that you're going to. There's something promising there. There's something profitable or you you hope, you expect there's going to be something profitable. And so you go there. And so I've done research on some of my grandparents, not all of them. I still would like to dig deeper into my mother's father, the Renew, uh, Richard Renew, I'd like to figure out more of where his ancestors originally hailed from because I so far I've been able to get not very far at all, just to his father before him. And on my father's mother's side, Ruth Nisley was her maiden name. I haven't been able to go very far back either. Or I haven't honestly tried to go back terribly far just yet. But I want to. I want to get into that some more. So far, I've spent the most time on my mother's mother's side, the McFarland. Nancy Sarah McFarland was her name. The McFarland line uh, is an interesting one, and I'm able to go very far back if I can trust the resources that I've found online, which are are, uh, multitudinous and sometimes a little hard to organize and keep track of. And uh, also on my father's father's side, Ernest Mullett, That line I've been able to trace back into uh, Switzerland in the late 16th century. But I want to talk a little bit about the McFarland line because I got to talking with Travis Polk last night. And I want to read off some of the story here because I think it's interesting. They've got anecdotal uh, evidence of kind of the sort of people that they were, these ancestors on the McFarland side. But let's just dive right into it, and I'll start reading off some of this Excel spreadsheet that I've built uh, over the years trying to organize the information. So I am son of Alice Ann Renew. That was my mother's maiden name. She was the daughter of Nancy Sarah McFarland. That was my grandmother that passed away this past summer. Now, Nancy Sarah McFarland was her maiden name, obviously. Nancy Renew was uh, her married name. But Nancy Sarah McFarland was the daughter of Donald Steely McFarland. And I don't know a whole lot about him. I know that he was disinherited by his father. His father was a wealthy to-do person who had a mistress. You know, basically the story that's been passed down to me is he had a mistress. And that woman ended up having a love child with him. And he was a wealthy man. He had a car dealership, I believe it was, in town and he had a lot of means to set up his mistress and his love child in a second home. And so Donald Steely McFarland objected to this. He did not like that his father had a mistress. He thought it was scandalous. He objected to it. And his father thanked him for his uh, you know feedback by disinheriting him, by cutting him out of the wheel. He did not end up inheriting any of his father's wealth. Now, Donald Steely McFarland, born in 1892, died in 1944. He was the son of George G. McFarland. Now, George G. McFarland was brother of J. Horace McFarland. And I don't know much about George G. other than he was wealthy, he was well-to-do, lived there in Pennsylvania. And his brother, on the other hand, uh, was J. Horace McFarland. He was an early environmentalist, leading proponent of the city beautiful movement in the United States. So that was a movement in which parks became uh, kind of du jour, it became fashionable for cities to have parks and to try and beautify their spaces, their urban spaces in the United States. Uh, George G. was born 1867, died 1940. So didn't die all that terribly long before his son, Donald Steely passed away. But Jay Horace, actually, he helped organize, from what I've read on Wikipedia, uh, helped organize the defense of Niagara Falls from development efforts by power companies. Also worked to protect Yosemite National Park with the famous environmental preservationist John Muir, who was, or at least is credited with fathering the National Park Service here in America. Now, George G., Might have been kind of a scandalous uh, figure based on the fact that he had a a mistress and set her up in a second house. But he was the son of a guy named George Fisher McFarland, who I've talked about on this program before. I'm very interested in the legacy of George Fisher McFarland. He was an interesting guy. He was a heroic figure in in my mind, in my estimation. Uh, He was born in Pennsylvania, and that's where the McFarlands, when they came to America, that's where they settled And George Fisher actually commanded the 151st Pennsylvania Regiment at the Battle of Gettysburg. He was an educator before the Civil War in Juniata, I think I'm saying that right, uh, Juniata uh, County, Pennsylvania. He was an officer in the Union Army during the Civil War, Lieutenant Colonel. And he actually saw severe, heavy, uh, intense combat on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, after the war, which ended up leaving him without one leg. He was shot and wounded and had to have his leg amputated at the Battle of Gettysburg. After the war, he moved his family from uh, where they were, kind of out in the country, to Harrisburg. And when he was there, he founded a printing company and a nursery. Mark Farland was the father of three children and superintendent of an orphanage. So that's kind of how he finished out his days is uh, he, he took care of an orphanage and uh, was the, the headmaster or what have you for that. And uh, and then, of course, his son was J. Horace McFarland. One of his three sons was J. Horace McFarland and then also George G. McFarland that I descend from. Uh, so, yeah, this says here, J. Horace McFarland started to work, started work in his father's printing shop at the age of 12, became one of the first American publishers to sound the call for environmental and scenic protection. So not 100%... Uh, thrilled with that. I don't think you can give them too much flack based on kind of, you know, the state of, uh, you know, American industry at that time. We're talking George Fisher McFarland, 1834 to 1891. So early uh, 19th century, or I'm sorry, mid to late 19th century, there was still a lot of just dumping raw toxic sewage and sludge from factories right into rivers. Not a great thing. But uh, after, or, or not after, but uh, farther back than George Fisher McFarland, I don't know much about the next several characters that I've got just names and dates for, but there's a John McFarland, born 1805. We don't know when or where he died. I don't know when or where he died. There's also a another John McFarland, so it seems as though there's two John McFarlands in a row. John, son of John. Uh, John McFarland the senior, uh, was born in 1766 and allegedly died in 1823, born in Pennsylvania, died in Angola. So I don't know what he was doing in Angola, but that's supposedly where he was at. And so it's a kind of an interesting question. It's like, okay, you're born 10 years before the American Revolution at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and then you die in 1823 over in Africa. What were you doing over there? Were you a mercenary? Were you a merchant? Were you traveling? Were you, you know, what's what's the story there? I'm curious. In any event, his father was Arthur McFarland, 1720 to 1780, uh, born and lived and died in Pennsylvania, and him dying in 1780, that's the same year that a smallpox epidemic raged through Providence, Pennsylvania. So I don't know if he died of smallpox back then, but he was alive concurrent with the American Revolution. So that's an interesting one. But his father, James McFarland, is actually the first McFarland that comes over to America. And I don't know precisely when, or I don't remember, I could check my notes on Ancestry, but I don't remember exactly when he came over. He ends up uh, being... um, buried in Pennsylvania in 1758, so he was here prior to the American Revolution, but he was born in 1698 in Ireland. Now, before James McFarland, there's another John McFarland, and he is born and dies in Ireland. So there's only one generation of McFarlands in the the line that I hail from that is both born and dies in Ireland and that's not where we're originally from because before john mcfarland there's a robert lee mcfarland who's born 1651 in scotland and dies 1695 in ireland so he's born in scotland where we're originally from on that side dies in ireland his father patrick mcfarland also born 1630 die 1690 dies five years uh, before his son robert lee mcfarland Uh, Robert Lee uh, lives not a super long life. He lives to the age of 44, so he dies young. But we've got a story here, an anecdote, that according to tradition, the parents of James McFarland emigrated from Scotland to the north of Ireland, where they suffered with other Protestants in the siege of Londonderry in 1689. After the arrival in America and within the last 40 years, I don't know when that was written, actually, but that's the note that I found. Uh, One of the family on the female side had in her possession a curious small glass cup, which was said to have been used in dealing out the scanty rations of food to the starving patriots during the siege when rats, mice, and horses' blood had a market value. So anyway, we'll stop there for right now. I'll pick that up again on another episode. But it's interesting to me that there's this brief stint, and by brief I mean just a couple of generations in Ireland before they come to the new world. They come to America prior to the American Revolution. Uh, I don't have evidence of any of my direct ancestors on this side fighting in the American Revolution, but uh, a brother of, I believe it was Arthur McFarland, one of his brothers uh, supposedly fought in the American Revolution. So anyway, enough on that. Let's move on to the next topic. Now, where the McFarlands originally came from in Scotland was a little place called Arocar. And I've got a long, long line. I don't remember exactly how many generations, but it's a lot. Starting with Gilchrist de Levenax in 1186 to 1263. He was the first Baron of Aerocar. May have participated in the Battle of Largs. He was the founder of the House of Arocar, seventh son of Aelin or Elwyn, second Earl of Lennox, received the feudal barony of Arocar from his eldest brother Maldomnek or Maldun, third Earl of Lennox, circa 1225, during King Alexander II's reign. Witnessed many of his brother's charters between 1217 and 1250. If he lived beyond the latter year, he may not have survived the Norse invasion of the Scottish mainland in 1263, which devastated Arocar and Lokloman side. But in any case, he died previous to a charter being granted to his heir sometime before 1284. He married an heiress from the Lothians, whose lands he exchanged with the king for those of Glenfaloc and Glendokart. May have perished during the Norse invasion of 1263, which devastated Arakar and side, or in the Battle of Largs in 1263. So, a little bit of re- repetition there, because I pulled this material from couple of different sources, but there was some repetition because they agreed on the general details of who he was. So Gilchrist de Levenax is uh, my 26th great-grandfather by my estimation. And so he's the first baron of Arrocar. And so I'm descended from him on my mother's mother's side. Uh, And then there's a Duncan de Arrocar who also participated in the Battle of Largs against the Vikings. The Vikings were trying to raid. They were trying to uh, colonize Scotland, uh, if I understand correctly. But uh, Duncan de Arocar fought them. And from what I've read about the Battle of Largs, because I didn't know anything about it before I started doing this research, uh, it doesn't sound like the Scottish necessarily won per se. They won in the sense that they didn't surrender and they put up a staunch resistance and they just were too stubborn to die and to lose, but they didn't necessarily win in the sense of just being these fantastical warriors that, you know, even the Vikings, you know, shook and and quivered in fear about. But that just seems to be kind of the trend is the, the Scottish, my ancestors in particular, they didn't always win, but they refused to lose. And so they ended up winning in a sense after a fashion because their opponents or enemies would just say, screw it, we'll leave you guys alone and go find uh, a softer target. But another interesting thing about Duncan de Arocar, 1230 to 1296, is that the notes I have say he was an avid supporter of William Wallace, which is cool. That's super cool. I feel a connection to William Wallace, Braveheart, if you will. The fact that he participated in the great Viking defeat in the Battle of Largs, the last and largest incursion into Scotland by the Norse is cool to me. So here's the note. I'm going to read it for you. So in the Battle of Largs, the last and largest incursion into Scotland by the Norse launched by King Haakon of Norway, as well as others, uh, Forced to sign the Ragman's Roll, pledging submission to King Edward I of England at Berwick on 28th August 1296. Received a charter confirming Erocar to him from his first cousin once removed and brother-in-law Malcolm, 4th Earl of Lennox, which can be dated by the names of the witnesses to before 1284. He married his first cousin once removed, Maud or Matilda de Lennox, of the House of Lennox. So that's Duncan. And then after him is Maldun Mal- McGilchrist. So remember how I said Gilchrist de Levenax was the first baron of Arocar. Maldun McGilchrist is kind of taking his name as a son of or a grandson of Gilchrist de Levenax. Kind of a way of saying that's who I hail from, that's my ancestor. Uh, he's the third baron of Arocar, 1260. 1314 died at the Battle of Bannockburn. So the note I have on him is that he was also referred to as Malcolm. He was a faithful adherent of King Robert the Bruce, aided him, held the barony during the War of Independence against the English. As a cadet of the House of Lennox, if he was alive and able-bodied, he would have fought under his first cousin, Malcolm, 5th Earl of Lennox, for King Robert I at Bannockburn on 24th June 1314. As my 24th great-grandfather. And then my 23rd great-grandfather is the person from whom the name Macfarlane comes from. So my 23rd great-grandfather is Parlan Macgilchrist. So you've got two now generations after Gilchrist de Levenax, first baron of Aracar, who take their name from the first Gilchrist. Gilchrist is the forebear, the patronym, And then you've got Maldun McGilchrist and you've got his son Parlan McGilchrist. And Maldun and Parlan, they both fight at Bannockburn. The father, Maldun, uh, is apparently killed at the battle. And Parlan, meanwhile, is the age of 17 by my estimations. I could be mistaken in that, but uh, I'd have to check my notes. What I do have for notes right now is that he fought courageously at the Battle of Bannockburn. He was also referred to as Bartholomew, fought with distinction alongside King Robert I, the Bruce, at Bannockburn against King Edward I of England. From Parland, the clan took its name. Therefore, he is reckoned to be the first chief of Clan Macarlane. Like his father, a cadet of the House of Lennox, he would have fought under the command of his first cousin once removed, Malcolm, 5th Earl of Lennox, during the War of Independence, including at Bannockburn in 1314 and at Halidon Hill, where the latter was killed on 19th July, 1333. Resigned Erocar in 1344 to his eldest son. So Parlan is the one from whom you start seeing the names uh, McFarlane or McParlane. And so you have a little bit of a uh, evolution, if you will, of the way this is pronounced but Parlan McGilchrist is the fourth baron of Arakar, the first chief so-called, according to the records that I have. His son after him is Malkulm. Malkulm is uh, the way it's kind of uh, spelled out so that you pronounce it the way that they would have or whatever. Malculum MacFarlane, thirteen twenty to thirteen ninety five, fifth Baron of Arocar, second chief, received Arocar from his father by resignation in thirteen forty four. I don't know what the story is there. Received a charter confirming Arocar to him from his second cousin once removed, Donald, sixth Earl of Lennox, who granted him another charter on fourth may, thirteen fifty four, which discharged him and his heirs from any past and future feudal duties owed for Arocar. So that's my twenty second great grandfather. And I want to stop right there because I could keep going on. I've got stories and little anecdotal um, you know, character portraits of you know these uh, ancestors that I've got from here on down to Robert Lee McFarland. I've got one for just about everybody. Patrick McFarland, I suppose, would be the last one that I have uh, just every single generation. There's a story about them. Patrick McFarland at 1600 to 1660, fifth Laird of Inversnade. But I want to segue a little bit into something that happens where the MacFarlane clan they end up getting into some hot water with the king, King James the Fourth, I believe it is. You have one of my ancestors; he's my thirteenth great grandfather, Andrew MacFarlane. He led some hundreds of his clansmen at the Battle of Langside, which broke the flank of Queen Mary's army. That was fifteen sixty eight, uh, gave victory to her half brother James, first Earl of Moray, the Regent. For this action in defence of his third cousin once removed, King James, the sixth, crown he received a grant of a crest to his arms along with the motto "This I'll defend." So that is now still the MacFarlane motto and family crest. There's a half naked Scotsman holding up. Uh, either a sword or a bundle of arrows, depending on which version you find. But then his other hand is on a crown, and it says, this I'll defend. So Andrew MacFarlane uh, built the castle on Eileen Avao in 1577, played host to King James VI, married his sixth cousin, twice removed Agnes Maxwell, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so before him, though, there is a... Andrew, his grandfather, Andrew MacFarlane, 1496 to 1544, 12th Baron of Arocar, 9th Chief. He was nicknamed the Wizard, and he was called the Wizard because he was uh, able to magically make his neighbor's cattle disappear. Now, if you don't know much about Scottish history, I'll inform you that the Scottish clans very often would have blood feuds with one another, they'd have rivalries, you'd have some clans that got along well together, like the MacFarlanes and their neighbors. The McGregors, they got along very well. They got on just fine. But the McGregors and the McFarlans and their neighbors, the Colquhouns, did not get on so well. And so Andrew McFarlane, 12th Baron, 9th Chief, ends up getting into trouble. He was charged by the Privy Council, he and his brothers and his heir, with having led over 600 men in an attack on Rostu. Rostu was kind of the. Uh, capital or the kind of the the main base for the cocoons. So Andrew was called Andra Am Theosrachar, Andrew the wizard from his use of magic tricks, which he picked up whilst a student in Rome, is reputed to have composed the clan Pibrochthogel Nambo, resigned his barony into the hands of his first cousin, once removed Matthew 13th Earl of Lennox for regret to his elder son on July 17th, 1543. So you see here, things start to go downhill. They get in trouble. The Macfarlans get in trouble for their constant feuding with the Colquhouns, And the Colquhouns are in good shape. They're in good stead with the king. And the Macfarlans, even though they participate in all these various battles and they're patriotic and they've got a long, rich history of fighting, so do a lot of Scots. And it doesn't save their necks from getting into trouble when they... Uh, are very effective in taking the fight to the Colquhouns. They are too effective. It gets them in trouble. And it's not too awful long after that that the McFarlands that I hail from end up leaving Scotland. They move to Ulster County, Ireland, and then on from Ireland, they come to the New World. So anyway, a little bit about that. It's kind of an interesting story. We'll move on. Patrick trick McFarland also born 1630, dies 1690, dies five years uh, before his son, Robert Lee McFarland. Uh, Robert Lee uh, lives not a super long life. He lives to the age of 44, so he dies young. But we've got a story here, an anecdote, that according to tradition, the parents of James McFarland emigrated from Scotland to the north of Ireland, where they suffered with other Protestants in the siege of Londonderry in 1689. After the arrival in America, and within the last 40 years, I don't know when that was written, actually, but that's the note that I found, uh, one of the family on the female side had in her possession a curious small glass cup, which was said to have been used in dealing out the scanty rations of food to the starving patriots during the siege, when rats, mice, and horses' blood had a market value. So anyway, we'll stop there for right now. I'll pick that up again on another episode, but it's interesting to me that... There's this brief stint, and by brief, I mean just a couple of generations in Ireland before they come to the new world. They come to America prior to the American Revolution. Uh, I don't have evidence of any of my direct ancestors on this side fighting in the American Revolution, but uh, a brother of, I believe it was Arthur McFarland, one of his brothers uh, supposedly fought in the American Revolution. So anyway... Enough on that. Let's move on to the next topic. So in the news this week, the Trump legal team ended up joining on or trying to join on to a lawsuit by the state of Texas Uh, along with a dozen and a half other states across America in challenging the election results in four battleground states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan. And so they tried to file a lawsuit. They were trying to take it to the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court basically overturn the results of the election in these four battleground states because these states did not handle the election according to their own constitutions, according to their own laws. You had people other than the legislatures in those states making last-minute changes to the procedures, and these last-minute changes actually facilitated fraud. That is the allegation. Now, the Supreme Court could have listened to this case. They could have made a ruling. They could have overturned the election on behalf of President Trump and on behalf of these Republican states. And they declined to. They declined even to listen to or hear the case. And their reasoning for such was because Texas and these other states lacked standing. Now that is debatable. I've seen a number of conservatives agree with that who are trying to think longer term. They're trying to think about dangerous precedents being set. You don't want states suing other states with, for instance, uh, an effort to throw out voter ID laws. Now, I personally think that there's a, a shred of cowardice, at least, along with the dose of principle here, where we're concerned about the Constitution, we're concerned about doing things in proper order, yes, but there's also a kind of basic human instinct, a fear of retaliation. You have conservatives not wanting to do this to the Democrats, Republicans not wanting to do this to the Democrats, even though there's ample evidence of fraud and dishonesty in this election. They cheated, and they cheated big, and they're hoping that their cheating pays off in giving them the White House, possibly not just the White House, possibly anything else that they want as well, possibly packing the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a concern that self-interest is being uh, the overriding concern here that you have conservatives in the country that are afraid of retaliation, and so they're not going to fight this. They're afraid of getting hit, and so they're not willing to hit. And you've got maybe even the Supreme Court, according to Dick Morris over at Newsmax, he did an interview with Newsmax, he basically said that the Supreme Court is afraid of being watered down, by the Democrats if they pack the Supreme Court. They're afraid of losing their relevance. The unfortunate thing is if you cave to the Democrats and you give in to their threats and their bullying and you just give them what they want, you give them the power that they're trying to get here, you've also basically given them the Supreme Court as well. So there's really not any point in having a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, if that conservative majority on the Supreme Court is unwilling to act in defense of this nation's constitution, this nation's laws, if they're willing to certify, even passively, an illegal move, and several illegal moves, actually, a barrage of illegal moves, a unlawful power grab here by Democrats then they basically nullified themselves. You can't fire me, I quit, is the the sentiment that I take from that. But it's interesting to me, when you have the Supreme Court deciding not to listen to cases, if they're saying it's because Texas lacks standing, then who is it that they think does have standing? Is this a situation where if the filing were worded differently, or if There's a little bit of a change in language and terminology. They would be willing to hear the case. They would be willing to listen to the evidence and make a ruling. Is that the case? I hope so. I hope that's the the case. I've seen some speculation to that regard. But I fear that it's not. I fear that this is actually just a callow uh, fear of retaliation, a fear of getting hit. And so what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about how my Studying genealogy and where I come from and understanding a little bit more about my heritage has given me a a different perspective on conflict. Now, my mother's mother's people, earls and barons and chiefs, and before that, and I didn't even get into it, but I could take a lot longer than I did uh, in the future maybe, We're talking about kings of Scotland, some of the first kings of Scotland, and before that, kings of the various other names that that area, parts of that area, went by. Kings of Alba, kings of Dalriata, kings of uh, Ireland, high kings of Ireland before they came over. Uh, There's a lot of rich history there, and them being from this nobility, from the ruling class of Scotland, Uh, for not just centuries, but millennia. I'm able to go back to 360 BC if I have my facts right and if the people that I was reading are reliable online. But them being this long, long line of the ruling class and being involved in so many battles, they fought on principle so often. And I love that heritage for the fact that they were willing to fight in defense of what they believed was their their principle. Uh, it got them into trouble ultimately and led to the decline and fall of the McFarland clan. They are not a clan with a chief anymore. They do not have their ancestral lands anymore. They do not have Arrowcar. In fact, the Kalkoons ended up getting that land and made an absolutely world-class uh, golf course. If you want to know the truth, they're on the shores of that lock, but they ended up coming to America, the the side that I hail from, and that's for the best. That's just fine, you know. My family, we moved around, like I said earlier in this program, moved around from Montana to Ohio, back to Montana, now down to Colorado, and so I'm somewhat familiar with what that looks like, the conversations that are had, but you get into some situations where. You have to just fight. You have to stand your ground. You can't run forever. You have to, at a certain point, say, that is enough. And it's interesting to me, you you look at this long, long line of MacFarlane's fighting in the major battles, being part of the conflict, central parts of the conflicts of Scotland as it struggled for independence as it tried to maintain its independence, fights with neighbors over, you know, are you going to push us around just even within our own little uh, local area a lot of fights they ended up coming to Ireland and had some fights with the uh, Catholic Irish that was the whole reason that the English wanted to transplant Presbyterian Scots to Ireland to kind of deal with the uh, uh, rebellious Irish problem over there and then they come to America and they fight in the Revolutionary War they fight in the War of 1812 they fight in the Civil War and it's interesting to me because the more I've read about the Scots-Irish and their role, their outsized role in the American Revolution, the more convinced I am that they were tired of running. They were tired of trying to get out from under the yoke of the English and other people that just wanted to oppress them. You know, it was primarily the English. They didn't recognize that the English had any right to rule them and tell them what to do, but the English, meanwhile, couldn't let go of this idea that really went back as far as Julius Caesar and the Romans first coming to the British Isles, this idea that they needed to conquer the entire British Isles. And the Scots, meanwhile, said, no, you know, we've been here a long time. We've got every bit as much right to rule ourselves and be independent. And you don't have a right to come in here and tell us how it's going to be. Well, then you get a lot of Scots-Irish that come over They leave Ireland. It's not working out so great there. It's just strife and mayhem and conflict, and they're tired of it, and they want to start over. They want to start fresh in their own land, and so they come to the United States of America. They set up shop again, and then they find it's right back at it. Second verse, the same as the first. The English are still trying to do the same thing that they've always done for millennia, and so the Scots-Irish here in the, the new world say, no, nope, not going for it. And because they're informed by the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment, because they're informed by these ideas that are communicated by men like Hume and Locke and Payne, they fight. And they fight for independence. And aren't we glad that they did? I think it's for the best. I think the world was better off because they were willing to stand and fight and say, no, self-government is important. It is an important principle, and we are going to fight for our independence. It was very much a continuation of the fights that were had in Scotland for centuries and millennia even. But I find it distressing that the Supreme Court is not willing to fight on this, probably. Maybe they are. I hope I'm surprised. I hope that I don't find, uh, you know, once this is all hindsight and we're able to look back and see in the rearview mirror what happened instead of just, you know, anticipating and watching the news obsessively, I hope that we find they were willing to stand on principle because that's what we need if this country is going to endure. If we're not going to stand on principle, it's just going to be a bloodbath to see if might can make right. Because right now, our rhetoric is not making right and our ideas of compromise and bipartisanship and let's all just get along and why can't we all just be friends and sing kumbaya, that is not getting it. That is not doing it. Sometimes you have to be willing to fight. Transitioning over, I want to talk a little bit about the fight that we are waging here and the kind of fight we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we are, first and foremost, on principle here on the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show and also over at the On the Rocks blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger. We are making plans to continue fighting this war of ideas and for the year 2021, we've got a number of exciting things cooking yesterday. Micah and I spent about two hours on the phone and uh, working through some Google documents, uh, sharing and uh, editing those together collaboratively uh, online and coming up with an outline for the next 16 episodes, at least uh, for on the rocks podcast on the rocks blog podcast is going to dive into the question of why do the right and the left disagree so fundamentally on so many different things why is this country so divided that rush limbaugh this past week could talk seriously about secession and are we headed for secession is that what this is all leading up to is the country going to break in half with the republican states forming one new union the Democrat states forming a separate union, possibly joining Canada. They can have each other. Is that where we're headed here? And so you have this idea of secession being deeply offensive to a great many people. Why would we secede? Why would we break into? Why can't we just bury the hatchet? Why can't we just compromise? Why can't we just get along? Why can't we just play the long game? Well, we've been playing the long game. We've been compromising and unfortunately, what compromise ends up looking like is the left gets what it wants. Sooner or later, we just maybe change the pace up, but we're getting to the same destination anyway. you slice it. And that doesn't work for me, and it shouldn't work for you either. And On The Rock's blog podcast is going to get into how the truth claims of the right and the left are fundamentally opposite, why they're mutually exclusive, why you cannot believe both things at the same time. It's like saying 2 plus 2 equals 4, and the person over there is saying 2 plus 2 equals 5. And then you have a third party that comes in and says, let's compromise. How about you guys shake hands and meet somewhere in the middle? How about you guys say 2 plus 2 equals 4.5? That's not any more correct than 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's less incorrect, but it's not correct. So if we say abortion should be illegal and the left says, no, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, quote-unquote, is the answer to just abort half as many babies. Is the answer to murder half as many people, half as many innocent children as the left wants to? Is that the solution here? I don't think so. I don't think that cuts it. That is not okay in the sight of God. That's not acceptable. Half of an injustice is still an injustice, and we should not be settling for cutting the baby in half like the two prostitutes that approached King Solomon, each accusing the other one of having stolen her baby. This woman's baby died, and she stole my baby and gave me the dead baby instead, and you need to decide, King Solomon says, cut the baby in half. And the woman who's willing for the baby to be cut in half doesn't really care about that child, and she's not actually its proper caretaker. She's not the one who should be raising that child. If she has that kind of a callow, selfish, self-absorbed, apathy towards the life and well-being of that child. She should not be that child's mother and she isn't that child's mother. So also with the calls for unity, the calls for compromise with the left, we cannot accept half of a dead baby. That is not okay. So on The Rock's blog podcast, we're going to approach the question of why is the left and the right so divided from the standpoint of Christians? Why are we as Christians Voting conservative. Why do we support conservative positions? What is it we're conserving? What does that mean? You know, conserve what? You know, if I'm going to conserve some mountain of cash, and I'm just an anarcho-capitalist, all I care about is money, and I want to conserve my free market principles, and that's all there is to it. But I don't understand why we have free market principles. I understand why those are a good idea, and I have no moral argument other than just taxation is theft, and I repeat that over and over. What is that? And how does that tie in with my Christian faith? And isn't it maybe just a a distraction? Maybe it's an excuse for greed. I'm just a greedy person that doesn't want to share. No, that's not what it is. As Christians, we believe that God's word defends the idea of private property. Thou shalt not steal conveys the idea that people have a right to their own property and Any old Joe blow off the street doesn't have a right to march into your house, which is your private property, and steal your TV, which is also your private property. That's not okay. They don't have a right to break into your car and hotwire it and drive off into the sunset. That's not their car. That's your car. That is your property. So the idea that there are private property rights that people have, that's something we're going to get into from the standpoint of, here's what the Bible says. So our plan is to have basically... A three part structure to each episode. And we've got, like I said, 16 outlined, generally speaking. We're going to get into what does God say about gender? And what does the left say about gender? What does God say about sexuality? And what does the left say about sexuality? What does God say about abortion and about the sanctity of human life in the womb? And what does the left say? So we're going to do that on each of these different issues. And we're going to spend 20 to 30 minutes. That's the other change that is coming. That's the other innovation that we're going to launch into in the new year. 20 to 30 minutes talking about what does God say? What does the left say? What are the political ramifications for this disagreement? What are some of the specific policies that come out of either adopting wholesale, what the left says, or more often compromising and saying, well, you know what, we'll go halfway. We'll just have half as much injustice, half as much untruth, half as much uh, iniquity by compromising, watering down our principles. We'll meet you in the middle. So that's our plan for the new year is to have shorter episodes. We've had long form episodes like this one that you're listening to right now. And you have been listening to on the Garrett Ashley Mellet show pretty much since its uh, inception. I like doing the hour long podcast But we're going to start transitioning to shorter podcasts per day and have them recorded all at once and then spread them out throughout the week. We'll drop one on Monday, maybe, for instance. We'll drop one on Wednesday, maybe, for instance. And we'll drop one on Friday, for instance. But we'll record all of them in series consecutively on, let's say, Saturday or Sunday, the week prior. And... I think in doing that, it's going to allow people to be more strategic in what they listen to. If they like us talking about, you know, what God says and what the left says uh, on a certain issue, they can listen to just that 20 minutes and they can share just that 20 minutes. If that is the most relevant thing and that's all they've got time for. We want them to be able to get in, get what they need and to get out if that's what they need to do. If they need to move on with their lives, we want them to be able to live a productive life. This podcast is not an end unto itself. It's a means to the end of helping us to all be more intentional and to be more integrated in our worldview, in our Christian worldview, to take every thought captive for Christ and to learn how to be conversational about these things. We don't want to just have these ideas rattling around in our heads uh, to no good profitable conclusion. We want to be able to act on them. And in order to act on them in a political way, we have to be able to communicate them. We have to be able to communicate them with gentleness and respect, as we read in the New Testament, to give a reason for the answer of the hope that lieth within us, but do so with gentleness and respect. That's what we want to be able to do. We want to be Bereans about things, searching the scriptures daily to see whether they're so. We don't want to be led around by our feelings and emotivist ideas of right and wrong. We want to be intentional. We want to be sober and vigilant for our adversary, the devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So that is the plan with On The Rocks podcast, On the Rocks blog podcast. And I'm very excited about it. I think what we'll do too is we'll have a episode per week where we talk about audiobooks. We'll talk about what it is that we're reading, how that's exciting, why we're reading it, what we're learning. I think that'll be an interesting segment and uh, we'll also try and incorporate interviews and have people on the program, people that we know, people that we don't know, that we'd like to know, uh, have them on for you know maybe one of those 20-minute episodes, maybe all three if they can spare the time and if they have the interest, and have them on and talk with them and ask them questions so that we can better understand these subjects and be profitable in our understanding, be fruitful We want to be faithful, we want to be diligent, we want to be good stewards who invest the talents that God has entrusted to us as a good master. We are his servants. We want to be good servants, faithful servants, who hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your place of rest at the conclusion. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the debate I'm having as far as going that same modular way, path, for Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show has been a long-form podcast since we started it, since I started it a couple of years ago. And I like recording for an hour. I like being able to just sit down and talk about things and let my mind work out the connections as I talk. That happens very often, not just for me, but for people in general, that as you're talking about things, as you're trying to explain them, you find yourself also better understanding them. And so I don't want to cut this up too much to where it loses that effectiveness in terms of you know being able to see the connections between things. I think that's a major problem that we run into in our country, in our day and age. We trust too much in the experts who are uh, master of just one thing, one subject, and they don't understand the implications and they don't understand the opportunity cost, because they don't understand other subjects besides the one that they're expert in. And they get asked advice of because they're an expert in the one thing and people assume, well, if you're really smart about that, then you're gonna be smart about everything. They lack wisdom. And wisdom really is the ability to be productive with the information that you have. It's not just knowledge. Expertise can be knowledge without wisdom. And so what we wanna be is we wanna be wise and in being wise, we'll get knowledge. We'll try and gather information, gather facts. We'll try and develop what Erwin Rommel referred to as finger, spits, and gaffel. Finger, spits, and gaffel is this fingertip feeling where we are familiar enough with the intelligence on the battlefield that just one little change, one little fact rearranging itself helps us to anticipate what's coming next. What is the enemy about to do? Well, they're about to hit here. They're about to attack us there. This is about to happen. So now we can maneuver. We can respond to it. We can be ready to react. We can be ready to face them where they think that we're weak. We're actually strong there where they don't want to attack is where they think we're strong. And so we're going to make them think that we're strong somewhere else. We're going to be quick and agile and adaptive and all that. I think single factor analysis makes us very, very vulnerable. And it, keeps us from being able to be profitable, maneuverable, wise, circumspect, good stewards. So that's one of the big things I want to do with this program is break out of that single factor analysis trend in modern society where there's so much information and you have so many people that want experts to tell them what to do and what to think because they'd rather spend the majority of their time just amusing themselves. We don't want to be that way. We need to be experts on our circumstance. We need to be experts on how to live in a wise way, in a way that honors God, first and foremost, that loves God practically. If you love me, you will obey my commands is what God says. We want to be loving God by understanding what is true, what is good, what is right, what is just, what is the proper thing that we should be doing. So that is what I want with this program And I don't want to break it up, chop it up into 20, 30-minute episodes if, in doing so, I'm going to negate its effectiveness to help you. But that said, if it can be more effective, it can be more helpful, it can be easier to follow, it can be better organized, more streamlined, and I can have content out there more often, and you can listen to more of it and process more of it, and it's more helpful to you if we compartmentalize it a little bit more I make more episodes, but all of those episodes are shorter, they're tighter, they're more focused, then maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's the way we should go. So I don't think I'm going to start it before the new year, but I'm making plans to start that in the new year. And I want to know what you think. I want to hear your advice on that. If you've got some feedback for me, if you've got some ideas, now is the time to give them to me. Once I get into a general format in the new year, I'm going to try and stick with it through that season we're in season two, we're nearing the middle of season two by weight. Uh, season one was about 36 episodes and season two. So far we're at 21. This is the 21st episode of season two. This is the 56th episode overall. This is episode 56, uh, of the Garrett Ashley Mullet show. This is episode 21 of season two, so if you're keeping math, that's 35 episodes in season one, 21 so far in season two. Now, season three could start up with a calendar year, uh, just make season three kind of a fresh start with this idea of the shorter episodes, the more compact, more focused episodes that are coming out more often, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes, and we'll see what works, and we're going to be flexible. We're going to be adaptable. We're going to change as we need to where we can, where there's flexibility on the means to accomplishing our ends, where God gives us flexibility and allows us to be creative, then let's do that. Let's be flexible. Let's be not stubborn, not rigid, not inflexible. Let's be flexible where we can be. So anyway, with that, that is the conclusion of this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I hope it's been helpful to you. I hope it's been interesting to you. I hope insofar as I've dove into the genealogy stuff, you didn't get the impression I think I'm better than you are, what does it really matter, right? If our ancestors were kings and queens and barons, if they were in favor and then they fell out of favor, it doesn't at the end of the day mean that we're destined for great things or awful things. If I have ancestors that were cattle rustlers, if I have ancestors that were kings and queens of Scotland and all that and, and the rest of the kingdoms before them, it is what it is. But the big idea is it is good to know where we came from. It is good to learn from the lessons of history. It is good to think about what kind of a legacy we're handing down to our children after us and thinking multi-generational, trying to be faithful, trying to be good stewards. Anyway, with that, we'll continue that topic uh, another day. But thank you for listening. I hope it was a benefit to you. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mollet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you heard today, visit the homepage for On The Rocks blog at onthe.rocks. Also, check out On The Rocks blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger weekly on Anchor FM. If you haven't yet done so, hit subscribe to this podcast also. And you can reach Garrett Ashley Mullet with any comments, questions, or complaints at Garrettmullett at gmail.com.